Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. It is the 25th of June, which means that today is the day that former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is going to learn his sentence in the May 2020 death of George Floyd. You will recall that a jury in April convicted uh, Chauvin on second degree murder and other charges. Prosecutors have asked the judge in this case, uh, Judge Peter Cahill, for a prison term of 30 years. Chauvin's attorneys have suggested probation. Um, Judge Cahill has already said that the severity of the crime warrants a higher sentence, has not indicated what that will be, but that sentence is going to be issued this afternoon. And so let's be um, anticipating that. Let's be praying for the peace of the city. Let's be praying for um, justice tempered by mercy. Um, You know, I think this is one of those times when Christians in the conversation have the opportunity to recognize that we all scream for justice when it comes to others, but we all, uh, you know, plead for mercy for ourselves and those we love. And so let's be mindful of that. There is always a tension when it comes to sentencing. Uh, There's a tension between justice. I mean, what would be just in this case, and mercy. And so um, recognizing that no length of sentence of any kind is ever going to bring the life of the of the individual back. And so good time for us to remember that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the consequences of sin are death, that Jesus has dealt with it in terms of the ultimate um, penalty that we all pay. Uh, and the question is whether or not you receive the free gift of grace in that God offers in Christ Jesus to pay the just penalty for your sin. Like that's the conversation we're all having uh, with God ultimately about justice. And it's a good time to have it in the culture as well. What is justice? Why do we understand it the way we do? Um, and is it, it, have we arrived at a place where we just understand it as vengeance? And if so, Does that work long term um, as a society and as a culture? We don't get what we deserve um, from God. In fact, we get precisely what we don't deserve. We get grace. And I recognize we don't have a grace-based justice system here in the United States of America. But as Christians, that's still the conversation we ought to be having in the culture. We ought to be the people who are bringing a grace-based conversation to the conversation about justice in the culture today. So I know it's complex. Um, I know it's hard, um, but it's, it's also necessary. So let's be praying for peace and let's be talking about the reality of real justice as, uh, as we all stand as sinners before God in need of, uh, of his grace and redemption. All right, next up, I've got Adam Holtz from Focus on the Families Plugged In. We're going to talk about, um, you know, not only what's on the screen, but some things uh, going on in the culture as well. We'll be right back.
Joining me now, Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. You can find him and what he's writing about at PluggedIn.com. Adam, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. It's been a little while. I know. Good morning. Good morning. All right. 12 Mighty Orphans. Let's lead off with 12 Mighty Orphans. So this is based on a true story. And the gist of it is during um, the Great Depression, uh, there was a a man in Oklahoma who decided to take in, uh, well, not take in, he he managed to place, if you will, 12 orphans at uh, the Masonic home in Fort Worth, Texas. Excuse me, not Oklahoma. And he created a football team with them. And there was enormous pushback that people said, we don't want to play football against convicts. We don't, you know, they were, mm. they were really facing a lot of prejudice, if you will. Uh, but uh, his name was Rusty Russell, and he was determined to really build into these orphans' lives. Now, the reality was Rusty had been incredibly successful himself, but his own secret was he had been an orphan, which very few people actually knew. Uh, And so he wanted to instill in these boys the life lessons that would enable them to go on and succeed. And playing football in Texas, even back then, football in Texas was a big thing. Um, And these guys weren't necessarily the caliber of, you know, huge fast athletes that people in Texas were used to. So what Rusty did was he really focused on the passing game, which we take for granted in football now, but football was mostly a running game back then. And so he became sort of an accidental pioneer of the way the game is played today. So uh, we have an inspirational story. We have a story that helps us understand the history of football. Uh, If there's a caution here in this PG-13 movie, we've also got pretty realistic dialogue that includes about 80 profanities. So uh, even though this is a super inspiring story, uh, it may not be the most family-friendly for younger viewers. You know, I think for for, teens in their middle years on up, this could be a a great one to watch. But below that, I think you're going to want to exercise some caution. All right. Yeah, I think it's a a great conversation starter, um, and particularly, yeah, for our teenagers. That's really good. How about F9? F9. This is not a movie about a function key. So let's just get that out of the way. Or a tornado. Or a tornado. (laughs) Thankfully, we don't have F9 tornadoes. (laughs) So this is the ninth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise, and... There's two kinds of people in the world, uh, people who love this franchise and people who probably don't care a whit. Uh, But let me fill you in if you're not uh, up to speed, if you will, (laughs) on on this one. Um, This franchise started back in 2001. Uh, Vin Diesel is sort of the, the anchor point here. And it started as a gritty kind of almost like Miami Vice on steroids franchise about illegal street racing and crime. And it has since grown into a global phenomena that is actually pretty staggering. And we're a long way from street racing now. About the fifth or sixth movie, it began to transition into something much closer to a James Bondish kind of uh, franchise and even almost a superhero kind of thing in that they don't have superpowers, but 
the stuff they do in these cars is so utterly insane that you can't help but sort of think of them in superhero-ish terms. And in each of the last several films, they have had to fight against uh, Bondy and kind of bad guys who are bent on global destruction. And that's the case this time around. Charlize Theron reprises her role as a villain named Cypher. She has bad plans for the entire world. And uh, Vin Diesel, his character Dominic Toretto, and his crew of racers must stop them. Um, there are more explosions, fights, bullets. I mean, it's just nonstop, but it's PG-13, and it's very cartoony in that the good guys never get hurt at all. You know, After a day of rolling cars around and dodging bullets, Vin Diesel usually looks like he just mowed his yard, and that's about as bad as it gets. Uh, but if you're a bad guy, uh, the, bo- the body count's pretty high. Lots of guys get shot and blown up, but it's all very sanitized in that superhero kind of mode. Um, so that's what we're dealing with here. Two things of note. There's a really strong emphasis on family. This message, this movie has a nice message about forgiveness and they always sort of start and end with some talk about God and God being present, God watching over us. The last several movies always end with a meal with this extended family where someone says grace. Uh, and so there are some kind of poignant moments in here that, uh, are really sweet amidst all the explosions. So in in reading um, just a handful of reviews of this film, I feel yeah. like reviewers like completely miss what the Fast and Furious series is even trying to do. Like, okay. well, I, I, I feel like these... Well, I think that all of these critics, I just, they're, it's like they're just saying, you know, that it's, there. there's nothing good about the film at all. Like, they're just, it's just all... Like, but it seems like they've missed what you have pointed out, which is that there's a storyline here that's just really very different than a car race or a car centric or car themed or car chase themed. Although there's lots of car chases like that's that is sort of what the series is about. But cars being where cars are not supposed to be, I think, as one critic put it. Well, Um, I'll just say there's a car in this one that ends up in outer space and they (laughs) This the people making these movies, they're in on the joke. Like there's no. Dialogue. That's my point. I think that's there's my point. Like it's supposed to be know? like a ridiculous, funny thing, and it's totally. like the critics all miss that the whole thing is ridiculous and funny. Right. No, that's right. Yeah. And okay. um, and they're laughing all the way to the bank. The last three of these oh, movies yeah. have all made over a billion dollars. These are huge movies. Yeah, and the U.S. audience is really not the primary audience anymore. No, it's really not. an Asian audience. Yeah. That's All right. right. Hey, we we have to take a super quick break. When we come back, um, Adam Holtz is going to brief us in on Pinocchio on Amazon Prime. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Now I'm a- Continuing my conversation with Adam Holtz from Focus on the Family's Plugged In. There's a ton of great content up right now at PluggedIn.com that I don't want you to miss. There is um, an anti-heroes become heroes uh, episode in the Plugged In Show podcast. Um, And there is a great blog on uh, how to get our kids off of screens this summer and some alternatives to that. So I want to direct you to those. Adam, let's talk uh, briefly about Pinocchio, and then I want to get to the Billie Eilish conversation. Yeah, cool. Yeah, you know, Pinocchio is one of those stories that existed before Disney, but probably most of us are most familiar with the Disney take on, you know, the story of Geppetto creating a little wooden boy who 
lies and his nose grows. But this is a movie, it actually came out about a year ago, but it has just now shown up on Amazon Prime in the last couple of weeks. It is a live-action Italian production. If you watch the Amazon version, uh, you'll get overdubbed. So at times it, it feels a little bit like a Godzilla movie, only with Pinocchio. Um, and this is a this is an unusual film in that um, it really has some moments of incredible tenderness and delightfulness. Roberto Benigni is in it. Some of you may have seen life is beautiful and he is wonderful as Geppetto. Um, and there's a, another Italian boy whose name is first name is Federico. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name cause I'll butcher it. Uh, and you know, he has CGI and makeup to make him look wooden and he's pretty delightful too. So this really gets back to the roots of the Pinocchio story. And the Pinocchio story was intended as a really strong cautionary tale, sort of in the Brothers Grimm neck of the woods, thematically, against, you know, kids disobeying their parents. And Pinocchio does that repeatedly. He makes bad decisions, and some really, really bad things happen to him. Um, and so there are moments here that are just pretty dark and disturbing. This is a darker pinocchio story than the one you you know have seen if disney's the only one you've ever seen now at one point um some people hang him on a tree and we see you know pinocchio hanging with a noose around his neck but he's made of wood so he's okay you know he gets turned into a donkey uh somebody ties a cinder block to his donkey leg and throws him in the ocean and we see him at the bottom of the ocean and so there were just these moments where i'm like yikes that's really dark. I'm not watching this with my 10-year-old. So if you have been hankering for a more realistic, grittier, more adult version of Pinocchio, this one's right up your alley. If you've got young kids and think, oh, Pinocchio, that would be fun, I would strongly caution you to read our full review on this one. All right, and you can do that at PluggedIn.com. Um, let's talk about what's going on in the culture in terms of – the way we are f trying to figure out how to have conversations and yet we start using words and, and putting them together in ways that are nonsensical. So I'm, I'm talking here um, about m maybe specifically the, the Lin-Manuel uh, Miranda uh -huh. piece that was in National Review, but even more largely yeah. like what's going on with Billie, English and, uh, Billie Eilish and others. Yeah, you know, we're in this moment where the level of sensitivity culturally, uh, you know, and I would perhaps argue predominantly from the left, although I think the right has its moments too. Um, if you step off the path in any way, shape or form, um, the left is out there and they're coming for you. And so with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, he has a new movie out called In the Heights, which is about Hispanic characters and immigrants from the Caribbean living in the Washington Heights uh, neighborhood of New York City. And he has been sharply criticized for not having dark-skinned Latino or Latin, is it Latinx or I don't even know. Yeah, Latinx. but apparently they don't like that term anymore. Well, but it's used by the progressives, even though most people of Latino origin don't like it. But the upshot is he came under criticism for even making a film that's full of Latino actors and actresses, they were still considered too white. And they said it wasn't diverse enough. And 
Lin-Manuel bowed and scraped and said, I've learned my lesson. I'm sorry. I'll do better next time. Mm. Um, then we have um, Winston Marshall, who is the guitar and um, banjo player from Mumford & Sons, uh, or I should say ex-guitar player and banjo player from Mumford & Sons, who uh, a while back posted something uh, positive about a book that was critical of stuff on the left and everybody immediately came for him and said, oh, you're a far right extremist. And he's written a long diatribe basically saying, no, I'm actually against extremism on both sides. But he is stepping out of the band because he doesn't want to bring unnecessary public uh, shame to them. And he wants to be able to speak his mind. And then with Billie Eilish, when she was you know, 13, somebody filmed her mouthing the words to a song that had an Asian slur in it uh, by Tyler, the creator, who actually is kind of universally hailed for the most part as a rapper who people love. Um, and she has had to issue an apology for, you know, essentially singing along as a 13 year old. And because she's, you know, white and not of Asian descent, this was considered a horrible thing. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I should have known better. And so again, it's, mm. The, the infractions here are minute. They are not racism. They're not any ism. It's just people being human beings. And if you do the wrong thing and you're out of sync with the progressive orthodoxy, you have to, you know, you're forced to issue these apologies or the angry mob comes for you. And the angry mob probably comes for you anyway, so it's hard to tell whether the apologies actually accomplish very much. So the the Mumford and Sons um, story, the Winston Marshall story, is I think really fascinating because so yeah. he's leaving the band in order that he can speak his mind. Right. Like in order yeah. to retain my ability to speak my mind to speak truth yep. the only way forward he says is for me to leave the band i hope in distancing myself from them i'm able to speak my mind without yeah. them suffering the consequences um that yeah. is a really extraordinary place to arrive at um yep. and and i guess i'm thankful that you know he feels like he has the probably financial freedom to do that and still make a way for himself in the world. Other right. people are going to be concerned about keeping their job and they right. are therefore going to self-censor and not say things that would be aligned with the truth. And they are going to, you know, I think as the book of Romans would say, not only, you know, sort of go along with what's, what's happening in the world, but, but celebrate those who do it. Yeah. Well, like, and the it's, thing a, is, it's a challenging time. It is a challenging time. And I think the crazy thing about what's happening on the far progressive left is it's never enough. And right. they even right. eat their own. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda, here's a guy who has made, you know, he made Hamilton. He did Moana, which is about <laughs> South Pacific people. Um, and now he's done this story focusing on his own community that he came from. I believe mm -hmm. he's from Puerto Rico. So he's singing his own story here. He's not telling somebody else's story. Uh, and he's wanting to lift up this group of people that he loves. And he's basically told, not good enough. You did not do a good enough job here. Your mm -hmm. diversity 
is not diverse enough for us. And it's not diverse in the direction that we are interested in. Right. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's incredible. he's not a, he's not a conservative, um, but he loves his culture and he loves his people, but apparently he didn't do it in the right way. And now he, he wanted, to he wanted the best people with the best, you know, right. voices to engage. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's very, very interesting days in which we live. Adam, yep. you and I got to leave it right there. Um, thank you as always. So very much you guys check out what Adam and others are writing. You can find it all at focus on the families plugged in.com. We'll be right back. As the death toll continues to rise uh, in the Surfside, Florida building collapse, uh, it's timely for us to be talking today about the reality of death. Death is going to come for us all. We all know that. But most of us live our lives day to day as if, well, death doesn't exist. It's not a real threat. It's not a real threat today. Medicine has made dying more complicated, removed the experience for most people from the home to you know, a sterilized, protected environment where most of us are not present when our loved ones die. Death is kind of partioned off, separated from, you know, the reality of life. And we find ourselves ill-equipped to deal with death as it approaches. And many of us have not thought about dying well, and we have not thought about living as those who are prepared to die. Well, a decade ago, author Rob Mole explored all of this uh, and he wrote a book called The Art of Dying in which he gives guidance for those who care for the dying as well as for those who are grieving. And then at the um, age of 41, a decade after writing the book, um, Rob died in a hiking accident. Uh, 41 years old, um, just, just a tragic story. His wife, Clarissa, now reflects on um, Rob's life and death and legacy uh, in the afterword of the republication of The Art of Dying. And we're going to talk with Clarissa next. This is Max Lucado. Forgiveness is the act of applying your undeserved mercy to your undeserved hurts. You didn't deserve to be hurt, but neither do you deserve to be forgiven. Does it not make sense to give grace to others? You've been immersed in forgiveness, submerged in grace. Can you, standing as you are, shoulder high in God's ocean of grace, not fill a cup and offer the happiness of forgiveness to others? In 2015, the world watched in horror as ISIS released its hatred on the streets of Paris. Antoine Léry lost his wife to their bullets, but he did not lose his heart to hate. He resolved to focus his energy on loving his son, not attacking his attackers. Let's do likewise. Offer to others the grace you've been given. It's time to forgive just as God in Christ forgave you. This is Max Lucado, and this is how happiness happens. Joining me now, Clarissa Mole. You might recognize her husband's name. He is the author of The Art of Dying, published 10 years ago. Just an excellent, excellent resource. 
um, for Christians as people who are called to live as those prepared to die, and then also for each and every one of us as we come alongside those we love in this life as they go through that process that leads unto death. Clarissa joins me today a couple of years following the death of her husband, Rob, um, and we're here to talk about that and the republication of the book, The Art of Dying. Clarissa, thank you for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks so much for having me. Um, These conversations have to be both um, a blessing and really difficult for you to have. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a reality I never could have expected when Rob wrote his book a decade ago that here I would be his widow talking about his words. Uh, But I am uh, grateful that he wrote those words because they've been a gift to me in grief. And uh, I'm convinced that they can create a new path forward for all of those who have lost loved ones and are in the same kind of situation I have been in. You are a really young um, widow and, you know, and the mom of four kids. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Rob. Let's talk a little bit about the conversations you guys had prior to his writing um, of of the art of dying, um, because I imagine that there were lots of conversations when he was a hospice chaplain and seeing the disconnect between, you know, what Christians espouse about our belief in heaven and how we ought to live with the expectation of death, but then the reality of how most Christians were actually processing through that. So true. That's right. You know, Rob was a hospice volunteer because he had been reporting for Christianity Today on the Terry Shavo case, and he had seen how families wrestled with end-of-life issues, and he really wanted to get his head around what Christians could do to die better. And what he found was that sometimes our hope of heaven actually kept us from dying well, that we were unwilling to reckon with our mortality, that we were unwilling to allow God to take over in those last days. And uh, as someone who was a firm believer in our eternal hope, Rob thought, you know what, there's got to be some way of doing this better. And we talked a lot about death and dying in our early 30s when he was writing his book. They were conversations, honestly, I didn't want to have. I didn't want to think about him dying, about me dying, about one of us uh, away from that picture of our family. But they were important conversations to have. And I am so grateful that we pushed through and, and did the hard stuff and talked about those things. I don't know, Clarissa, if it's a time of life issue um, or maybe that we as a culture, because of the pandemic and other things, are talking more about the reality of death, where people are dying, the circumstances in which they are dying, dying by themselves. Um, But it does feel like there's more conversation about this today um, than there was 10 years ago, certainly than there was 30 or 40 years ago. Um, I'm wondering if you are recognizing that as well, that people do seem more primed for these conversations today, where in the past, maybe, I don't know, these were conversations that were deemed inappropriate to be made public. I would agree. Certainly the pandemic has forced death into view, right? We are not able to turn away from it in this season. And I think my primary concern is now as the world begins to reopen in many places and life is getting back to normal, that these conversations about death and dying will ebb away, that we'll try to move on to a new normal where we don't have to think about these things anymore. But the reality of the pandemic, what it's taught us is that death is something that comes to each of us. And it 
would do us well to be prepared. When we think about, you know, just specifically what's covered in um, in the book, The Art of Dying, uh, it, it is by Rob Mall, and it's been reissued um, by InterVarsity Press with a new afterword by his wife, Clarissa Mole, who joins us now. The Art of Dying, Living Fully into the Life to Come, first published in 2010. Um, when we look at the contents of the book, I'm wondering, you know, in your own experience, you know, it all holds up. I recognize that. But in the face of, of Rob's death, is there some portion of the book that, like, maybe was a surprising um, gift to you? Well, Rob died suddenly. He died in a hiking accident on our family vacation, and so we had no warning. And, uh, and people have asked me, were you prepared for his death, having had mm. these conversations with him and living alongside of him as he published and wrote on this topic? And I have to say, yes, I was very prepared for his death because we talked about our end of life uh, concerns, uh, what we would do in the event of our one of us passing and how we would handle finances and children and all of those kinds of things. And so, yes, in some ways, I was very prepared for his death. But what has really surprised me, and he talks about this in his chapter on mourning, is that nothing at all can prepare you for grief. Uh, nothing mm -hmm. can prepare you for the brokenheartedness that comes from losing a loved one. And uh, that's something that really surprised me because I honestly thought after all of our conversations, we'd been prepared. And I will say that that preparation has allowed grief to take up the space it needs to in my life. And I don't think that would have been possible without those conversations uh, to engage with the very difficult and uh, unexpected uh, weight of loss. I'm talking with Carissa, Clarissa Mole. We will um, return to this conversation about the art of dying in just a moment. Continue my conversation with Clarissa Mole. Um, we are talking about her husband's book, The Art of Dying. Um, it has been republished, uh, reissued by our friends at InterVarsity Press. I'm going to highlight it for you. If you did not read it 10 years ago when it came out the first time, um, this is an excellent, excellent resource. Personally, it's an excellent resource for congregations. It has a study guide. It will lead you into um, conversations about living fully into the life to come. Um, it is honest, it's provocative, it, it holds up over time, and it's theologically rich. So Clarissa, um, I love the end of the introduction um, where Rob says this, meditating on one's death has been practiced throughout Christian history. Um, St. Isaac the Syrian instructed, quote, prepare your heart for your departure. If you're wise, you will expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to meet it, saying, come in peace. I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. How did um, Rob live as one prepared to die? 
Well, Rob lived richly. Uh, he enjoyed nature and our family. He enjoyed uh, his work. He enjoyed relationships deeply. And I think that's the first step in learning to die well. It's to live well, to enjoy all of what life has to offer. Second, though, I think Rob was always very aware of the limited nature of uh, human life, that we were fallible, that we were fragile, and uh, he was always willing to reckon with that, you know, whether it was in a physical way with an illness or in a larger way in relationships. And as I think about how he prepared to die, uh, his awareness of his mortality stemmed from his hope in Jesus, that understanding his smallness allowed him to open his heart to God's greatness and to the work of Jesus on his behalf. Um, it's not uh, lost on anybody listening that this past Sunday was Father's Day and that um, that's now a whole different thing in your house. So can you just tell us, just give us a little bit of a window into, you know, what's going on as a family, it, it really in um, not only in support of you um, as a mom who's now doing a really difficult thing, raising four kids, but also just as your kids you know, kids change so much in a year and certainly in two years. And so as they mature, how their sort of conversations about these things and exploration of it, how that's all changing. Well, you know, I'm always honest with my children. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat. We don't use euphemisms. Uh, we say that dad died. Uh, we don't use passed away or even go to heaven, even though that's where I believe he is, because I think that oftentimes cultural euphemisms can keep us uh, blindfolded from the truth. And if you've lost a loved one, you know that there's no way to uh, deceive yourself from the empty chair at the table, from the uh, empty seat at the baseball game where a dad used to be. And so, uh, first of all, I'm always honest with them that this is a hard, hard road. Uh, so on occasions like Father's Day, we don't try to uh, slap a, a shiny sticker on a sad day. We just go ahead and feel all the feelings. Uh, mm -hmm. But th with that said, uh, my children know that Jesus is our hope. And so as much as we acknowledge our loss, as much as we feel and welcome all of the feelings that come with grief, whether it's anger or disappointment, frustration, or a sense of uh, despair, we do not despair as those who have no hope. And so part of what our family's rhythm has always been is to pray regularly, to you know, ask Jesus, come quickly. Now that we have experienced loss, we long more for his presence and for his good kingdom. And uh, so all of that is a balance. It's holding joy and suffering in the same hand. And I think for me as a mom, teaching my children to do that, boy, I wish I had learned that at a young age, that life wasn't quite so black and white as I had expected it to be. And I hope that as a mother, I am offering them the full mystery of what life is to live as a believer in a fallen world. So my dad um, died when I was 15. He was 43. And it has... Um, I, I am one of those people who expects death. And and so I know that I have a view on it that's very different than people who, are, you know, are my age and have yet to experience a, a significant 
uh, close uh, close proximity death in their own family. Um, it is different. Death, it, the experience of death as a young person um, does change the way you then view the world, your own life, life itself, um, and the hope of heaven. And so, you know, there's a there's this strange gift that comes from experiencing it at such an early age because you it does change the way you then engage with the brevity of this life, no matter if that brevity is 40 years or 90 years, it's still brief when you're talking about an eternal life. That is so true. And and first, I want to say, I'm sorry for your loss, Carmen, because, you know, one of the things that that we don't say to people after the fact, you know, as years go on, is that that the ache continues, that in mm-hmm. some way or another, grief carries out its uh, walk with us throughout our lives. And so even when your loss is, is, has occurred years in the past, it does change your perspective. And whether uh, you're years later, you're looking at your daughter walking down the aisle and she doesn't have her dad with her to do that, mm-hmm. or whether there's a special occasion that your person just isn't there for, you feel that grief for years and years to come. And uh, that perspective shift that you talk about isn't just an instantaneous kind of thing, but it's something that walks with you. And I think uh, it gives you wisdom. It gives you a sense of uh, purpose. And uh, for the believer, it gives you a strong sense of longing for, for God's coming again. So, Clarissa, um, I I have this question here, and it just says blacksmithing question mark. I'm wondering if you have something that uh, that Rob forged. If you have something, is there is there a physical thing from his blacksmithing uh, hobby? I do. Yes. And, you know, so that. few people ask me about his blacksmithing days. Yes, I do. I have some uh, iron rings and hooks that he forged during his volunteer blacksmith days. And, you know, anything after your person passes away, anything that is tangible is just such a precious treasure. So even these small things that uh, that he wrought in the forge uh, are precious to me now because his hands touched them. And so in uh, some way, they're a tangible reminder of his life. Absolutely. We are thankful that God pounded into his heart and then he pounded out onto a keyboard the book, The Art of Dying. But I'm particularly thankful that he also pounded some things out that you can still hold on to um, from his blacksmithing because I think that's really, really cool. Clarissa, thank you so much for joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you for having me ongoing blessings. That is Clarissa Mole. Um, We are talking today about the republication of her husband's book, The Art of Dying, Living Fully into the Life to Come. We'll be right back. (laughs) I think Paul's playing this because it is Razor Dog to Work Day. Yes. And possibly because while I was away, my family got another dog and I get to meet her tomorrow. So there you go. Maybe that's why. All right. There you go. She doesn't have a name yet, but I, I am sure that Studio Dog um, is none too happy that there's now a fourth dog on the on the farm, on the LaBerge farm. So there you go. More reporting on that next week. Hey, over the weekend, go ahead and text the word EVENT to 877-933-2484. You could do that right now. You could also visit us at myfaithradio.com. Get all the information 
about our live stream event this coming Sunday night. It's going to be hosted on our YouTube and Facebook channels um, at Faith Radio. We want you to join in this Conversations with Carmen event. If you go to the website right now, MyFaithRadio.com, and click on the link to that page, then you can actually submit your question in advance. And if you submit your question in advance, there's a really good chance it's going to get answered. Um, Why? Well, because I'll have it in advance, and I might have like a minute to prepare. So go ahead and give me a heads up that you've got a question for me to address Maybe, you know, how does my faith walk itself out into the culture in a particular way? Maybe I'm trying to address something at work. Maybe I'm challenged to process through something with a friend, a colleague, a child, a parent, whatever it is. We're going to take the issues of the day. We're going to bring the mind of Christ to bear. If you've ever thought, you know, I've got a question for Carmen, or I'd like to have a cup of coffee with Carmen and ask this question and have her help me process through it, that's what we're doing. Uh, So go to MyFaithRadio.com. And check that out or text the word EVENT to 877-933-2484. I will see you Sunday night and then right back here on Mornings with Carmen on Monday morning. Have a great weekend. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.